The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A bit of housekeeping here first. It's been my habit lately to only post a new episode once the most recent one has hit a certain number of listens, which usually takes five or six days. Tales of the Elders of Ireland uh, was able to hit that number in less than two days, which is pretty incredible, and I thank all of you out there for for being able to do that, and I realized I need to get busy and uh, get a new episode out, and uh, that is a great rush to be in. So if you don't want to hear about loneliness, this will be another two-part episode. If you don't feel like listening to me talk about loneliness for about 20 minutes, Look in the post description and it'll tell you where in this episode the second part begins, where instead I talk about Shakespeare and sex and Shakespeare's sonnets. But um, I posted a link recently on my website to the episode on loneliness that I uh, posted back in, it was first posted back in September, I think. And I got more good responses to that episode. And in fact, I think that might be my favorite of anything that I've um, posted here on this podcast. Uh, It means a great deal to me that what I was able to say in about a half hour and how I was able to say it, I think it really does work and it shows what I was trying, what I've always been trying to do here, um, of basically trying to speak off the cuff with only a bare outline and just see what happens. It's one of the episodes that I am proud of, and I wanted to talk more about loneliness right now, because I had a sort of, uh, I won't say revelation, but just an insight into it. Now, for me, my poetry, the my education in poetry written in English, uh, the, I have that distinction for a reason. That my education in poetry, as it is, belong, began a long time ago, as I was writing my book to the House of the Sun. But after that book was finished, I finally got back into reading poetry in English, since to the House of the Sun is occupied so much with mythology and religion. Most of the poetry that I got into there was poetry in translation, and mostly poetry translated by scholars. Once that book was done, I was able to finally just study poetry in English, and what gave me an entry entryway into that were a handful of Penguin anthologies. The Penguin Anthology of Renaissance Verse, coupled with the Penguin Anthology of Metaphysical Poetry, 
which co basically covered the tail end of the 1500s and then all of the 1600s. Then the Penguin Anthology of Romantic Poetry, the Penguin Anthology of Victorian Verse. And then after that, you have uh, more varied um, anthologies of 20th century American and British poetry. And so there was always a gap, though, in, in that. I wondered, why hasn't Penguin put out a book of poetry from the late 1600s and into the 1700s? Why is there... Why are we basically waiting between Shakespeare, Milton, and Dryden to suddenly get to Blake and Wordsworth? And that was when I found the Oxford book of 18th century verse, and that's what I've been reading lately. And I'm seeing what it is. Uh, there, there, at least so far, there really doesn't seem to be anybody uh, in there. Even Alexander Pope seems to me a good technician, and he's nice and all, but he doesn't seem to, to fill that role. I'm still waiting to get to Thomas Gray's elegy in a country churchyard. But even the the uh, the editor, um, even he says, uh, I don't want it to seem as if we're basically waiting for William Blake and William Wordsworth to show up. I don't want it to seem as if what they're doing here in the 1700s is basically leading to Wordsworth and Blake, but it seems that that might be what is happening. There's not a lot that is terribly inspiring going on. The uh, the poets are stuck in a rut of just rhyming constantly. Um, I've come across very little blank verse, and um, it's not uh, it's not terribly inspiring. But at the same time, it is exciting to just see what people are doing. I'm reminded of from a book uh, about Beethoven, the idea that when string quartets as an art form were first invented, it was kind of a, a parlor room thing. There were non-professional groups of people who could play string quartets, and they would get together and do that. And the anthology of poetry from the 1700s seems to be something like that, where you had everyday people um, just uh, all over the place in England, picking up poetry and rhyming and seeing what they could do with it. And in that sense, it's nice just to see what people are doing with the language. And I wrote to a friend of mine saying, there are probably only 25 or 75 or I don't know how many people who are actively reading the Oxford Anthology of 18th century English verse. And wouldn't it be nice if we could all get together and talk about it? But then I realized, based on something that my friend had said about this earlier, that that's actually probably not the case. One of the images that we have of poets today, or of writers today, we have the image of the Beats, or of Paris in the 20s, or of... Um, uh, poets out at a coffee house or a cafe, or the, the, the drunk poet who's out having fun with other drunk poets, the gangs and the groups in colleges and universities, the everyone getting their MFAs, that whole thing. It's all very public. And in a way, that's the rut that I've been stuck with. That's the rut and the distraction that has made me, I think, talk about 
fame and getting noticed and all of this. Um, but that just isn't how many poets and many readers of poetry work. It was pointed out to me by my friend that probably most people who would pick up the Oxford uh, book of 18th century verse, they want to read it quietly and they want to be left alone. And that just has never been my motivation in these things. There has been this dual thing that I mentioned in my in the first episode on loneliness, that when I was younger and before the condition was identified as such, I had issues with my ears and with my hearing, so that for a long time I was probably living in silence. And so I wondered in that episode if those crucial months, or however long it was, if you can imagine a slow degradation of my hearing until it was identified, that I lived in silence so that by the time it came to, by the time it came for me to have surgery, to have it corrected, and to have a series of surgeries until my, until I was 12 years old that finally uh, corrected it for good, I've had this strange relationship with silence. I enjoy it. I enjoy silence. I enjoy being alone. I enjoy being by myself. But I also have this knee-jerk need to be with other people, to hear other words, to hear other people, to share other people's words, to not just read poetry quietly, but it has but I have to gravitate towards what I've learned Homer was for, which is which was for um, being performed in front of an audience. I have to gravitate towards poetry that does not want to just be a nice shape on a page. I mentioned Louise Gluck's uh, remark that she hates the idea of reading her poetry out loud, and she would probably hate the idea of someone else reading her poetry out loud, and that she mostly thinks of her poetry as a kind of architecture on a page, a shape of stanzas or of lines. And that has just never been the case with me, and it's nice realizing that. It was nice realizing when my friend emailed me that that is another thing that is just my bias, that uh, that is just my thing. It doesn't have to be anybody else's, and in many cases it probably isn't, that the uh, not everyone else wants to get into T.S. Eliot or whatever it is, or Whitman, and then go and talk about it and scream it from the rooftops and make it something social. I've never been someone uh, who says, I'm only writing for myself. Uh, one of, actually, I think one of the first poems I ever had published when I was a teenager and that won an honorable mention at a community college for high school poetry, it was, all it said was, uh, I watched the sun rise the other morning the sunrise the other morning, but had no one to share it with, period. And then it said, useless beauty. I watched the sunrise the other morning, but had no one to share it with, useless beauty. And while I've come to move away from that cynicism and that, uh, that, that more cynical loneliness that a teenager has, I still think that that is essentially 
the ground that I have emerged from. I, and part of this too was hinted at when I mentioned um, an, an interview that uh, the poet Christian Wyman did with the much older poet Donald Hall. And I said, these two poets who are well known in their lifetimes can go ahead and say in an interview that their poetry will probably not last and that they're okay with that. And But I've never felt that way. And part of that is because Christian Wyman, who was also the editor of Poetry Magazine for a long time, and Donald Hall, who uh, conducted the very first interview for the Paris Review with T.S. Eliot, those wonderful Paris Review interviews, they both had public lives as poets. So it may not bother them that their poetry will not last. So on top of... So that's another layer of it, is that I probably will never have a public life or a public recognition as a poet. So that is even more reason for me to want to have a podcast, to want to believe that poetry can matter in people's lives, that it doesn't just have to be uh, something that is on a page, and that I don't ever want to talk to anyone about it, or that, um, or indeed that I don't ever want to be recognized for it. Um, it's all clued in there as to also just why I uh, fall into the manifesto of saying, I want to write poetry that is meant to be read out loud and is meant to be heard. And that clues into why I am now trying to write rhyming poetry, because I want to write a poetry that is meant to be music and meant to be heard. And why I gravitate towards uh, folk songs, very simple folk songs, or the the sort of ditty that I read a few months ago from uh, Christopher Marlowe. Um, all of these things feed into loneliness, um, I believe. The idea that this language needs to be heard, and that I spent so much time in silence, and now as an adult, I am spending so much time in relative silence of very few people reading my poetry that I feel the need to present it or express it in this way. Now this is a, a lot more loose than the other episode on loneliness, but it, it, was, it struck me both that I've gotten a good response to the first one about loneliness, and at the same time I received this message from my friend telling me that most people who read this kind of poetry um, probably don't want to sit around and talk about it. And he even admitted that he himself doesn't really talk about writing with that many other people other than me. And that is just something that I have always done. It is the bane of my wife's existence sometimes. Just, uh, just the fact that I write something and I want to immediately share it with her. And she has to put on her poker face, usually, to tell me that, yes, that's fine, but um, you just wrote it ten minutes ago, so it's going to need some work, that kind of a thing. I can remember being in Georgia, uh, when I was living in Georgia, and I was at my most social, you might say, and I came across uh, a couple who were at a Barnes & Noble, and they had picked up a copy of Mark Danielewski's 
House of Leaves. If anyone has, hasn't read that, they should at the very least go and pick it up to look at it. And um, this is something I would have never done before and certainly something I've never done after. Um, it was clear that these people were out on a date, but the way they were acting with each other, it was also clear that it was an early date, maybe a first or a second or a third date. And for some reason, I saw the two of them holding this book. And, <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's a weird book. Uh, you should give it a try or something like that. And they both looked at me like I had walked off another fucking planet. Um, that is not something that you do, especially not to a couple who are out on their date. Um, but that's another indication. Um, you you have your safe pockets of who you are willing to talk to about these things. And uh, and you don't deviate from that. And, I, and this all came up with my friend because I realized that uh, that someone that my wife and I hang out with quite a lot, actually is a poet. And we didn't hear that news from this person. We heard it from their partner when, uh, when the poet was not in the room, you might say. And that person has never brought up the fact that they're a poet. They know that, uh, I think they know that I am, but only because I have only mentioned it in passing as well. And I mentioned sort of how sad that was, that Three out of four people in in um, a couple's friend, you know, uh, four people who are friends. Three out of four of those people are writers, and yet we have never, even during the pandemic, when we had every excuse to huddle indoors and not go anywhere, we could just sit around and talk. Never have we talked about what books mean to us, what writing means to us, what poetry means to us, and. And I said to my friend, isn't that sad that we have never talked about poetry before? And my friend wrote back to me and said, I really don't know if that is sad. And then he said basically what I've mentioned already. And I recall too Cormac McCarthy's remark that, um, that under no circumstances did he find much solace or much need to hang out with other writers. He hung out with people who were creative in other fields, or he just hung out with people who weren't writers at all. And that was just a clue to me as to where I'm coming from. It is once again just me uh, who is thinking these things are sad or strange. It's just me who thinks that writers or poets should be acting a certain way, when in fact um, they really don't. And so I don't know if this is quite the sequel. This isn't quite the Two Towers or, uh, or Aliens uh, to the much better original, but I thought it was worth mentioning uh, here just these small things as, a, uh, as an introduction to talking a little bit more about Shakespeare coming up right now. This is chapter 53 of Peter Ackroyd's biography of William Shakespeare. 
and I'd like to read a great deal from this book, but it seems that this is a good place to start. This is uh, one of Peter Aykroyd's chapters on uh, Shakespeare's sonnets. And as always with Aykroyd, uh, you're in for a treat. This is just amazing writing uh, on its own, and it's just an added bonus that it happens to be about Shakespeare. This is what Peter Aykroyd says. Instead of speculating about the personages addressed in the sonnets, it is more appropriate to speculate about the speaker. In the only sense that matters, Shakespeare addresses the sonnets to himself. His muse here is midwife rather than mother. That is why he continually transforms his love of a person to love of an idea or essence. The poems themselves are maintained within a very direct form of address, a piercing eloquence that is controlled, convincing, and fluent. They show great strength of mind, well-ordered and well-sorted. They display enormous self-confidence as well as inordinate cleverness. The speaker is heavily addicted to puns. There is the occasional tincture of false modesty but the tone is generally enterprising and bold. The speaker takes a great deal of pride in his performance and is insistent that his poetry will confer everlasting fame. The poems represent a narrator who is sexually alert and eager, but who is also capable of intense infatuation and no less extreme sexual jealousy. This is not necessarily William Shakespeare, it is William Shakespeare as poet. It would be wrong to argue, of course, that the plethora of outside parallels means that there is no parallel at all. It is certainly possible that elements of Shakespeare's emotional life entered the poems just as they entered the plays. We may note, for example, the strain of keen competitiveness within his nature. He seems to have been charged by the prospect of literary challenge and by the presence of literary rivalry. It is most plausible, then, that he invented or concocted the idea of a rival poet as a spur to his invention. The idea of a, quote, better spirit gave him a sense of limitation which he could then transcend. It is interesting that throughout his career he never once praised a fellow dramatist. He was highly ambitious, energetic, and resourceful. Who else would have conceived of the great range of history plays at such a young age? In his earlier plays he thrived upon parody of the fashionable authors such as Marlowe and Lilly, which can of course be interpreted as a form of aggression. He was very good at creating slyly or openly aggressive characters, such as Richard III and Iago. And it is intriguing that much of the dialogue in his plays takes the form of competition or contest of wit. There is much scorn and impatience, anger and fretfulness in the sonnets. Shakespeare was spurred on by his predecessors, by his, quote, sources, in the continuing pursuit of mastery. And it should be added that Shakespeare did not become the most eminent dramatist in London by chance or accident. He actively wished for it. 
This may have some connection with another persistent tone in the sonnets, where the narrator seems to be essentially a solitary. It is significant that the beloved, if one existed, is never mentioned by name, especially given the fact that Shakespeare assures him that he will be rendered immortal. Shakespeare wanted the world to honor and remember his love, rather than any recipient of it. In the sonnets, Shakespeare is musing essentially upon the true nature of the selfhood. His subject was his own self, and in that cunning and witty solipsism, others were lovable insofar as they loved him. We may, we may recall Aubrey's remark that, in Shoreditch, Shakespeare declined to join in the debauchery of his colleagues. For most of his professional life, he lived in lodgings away from his family. No letters survive. He may have written very few, and there are few reminiscences of him, and he was, of course, singularly reticent about himself. Was he shy, or reserved, or aloof? One or all of these terms may fit his being in the world. We have also found him by report to be amorous, witty, fastidious, and fluent. There is no necessary discrepancy here. It should be recalled that he played his own role in the world with supreme success. He invested with great joyfulness those characters who, like Falstaff, create and recreate themselves for any conceivable situation. It is also the mark of his powerful presence and authority that he is utterly and uniquely Shakespearean in all of the themes and moods inherent within the sonnets. This may sound like the merest commonplace, but it is a phenomenon worthy of contemplation. There is no other writer quite with his consistent and continuing identity. Let's start that sentence over. There is no other writer quite with his consistent and continuing identity through comedy and tragedy, verse and prose, romance and history. He plagiarizes himself. He parodies himself. His plangent words in the sonnets on love and obsession echo those of Richard II immured in prison. And whenever Shakespeare is inclined towards meditation, he reverts to the idiom of that player king. There are so many echoes of Twelfth Night in the sonnets that the strident figure of the man-slash-woman Viola might almost be considered to be the master-slash-mistress of the sonnets. There is a phrase in Sonnet 121, the words of which echo through his plays, and that phrase is, I am that I am. It is, of course, a repetition of God's words to Moses on Mount Horeb at the burning bush scene. But the phrase may also be compared to Iago's remark that, quote, I am not what I am. Shakespeare is both everything and nothing. He is many and yet no one. It might almost be a definition of the creative principle itself, which is essentially a principle of organization without values or ideals. Virginia Woolf described Shakespeare as, quote, serenely absent present. And that strange counterpoise seems to summarize the evanescent yet ubiquitous shape 
of his genius in his works. His presence is conspicuous by its absence. Say that again. His presence is conspicuous by its absence. He had an excess of selflessness, a negative so deep that it became a positive. This may have been at first a matter of instinct or of vital necessity, but at some point it became part of a deliberate pattern. And it's worth pausing here for a moment uh, just to say that so much of what Peter Aykroyd is saying is, of course, conjecture. Um, where is it? Uh, his subject was his own self, and in that cunning and witty solipsism, others were lovable insofar as they loved him. In, a, in the usual biography, you wouldn't say that about somebody unless you had a remark of theirs uh, that someone else had quoted or a remembrance of someone else who knew them saying something like that. A lot of this is conjecture, but it is conjecture from someone who adores Shakespeare and who seems to have uh, absorbed and consumed the plays. And in my case anyway, I am willing to go with all of these conjectures because they sound so uh, convincing. Um, just as Peter Ackroyd imagines that Shakespeare has no point of view, that his point of view is to his point of view is, is towards action and the power of expression. Um, he doesn't have a political or a religious or a social point of view. There would be no uh, there would be no political protest poem coming from Shakespeare. In the same way, uh, Peter Aykroyd is, does not have a point telling these things about Shakespeare either. He doesn't have an underlying motive. He is enraptured by this essence, this power that appeared in the English language. And he is doing the best that he can, and I think it's quite amazing what he does trying to put into words what that might be. And this kind of writing may not work for other biographies. This kind of writing may not work for all readers, and it may not work for other subjects of biography where, where the author or where the writer of the biography and the subject can actually pretend to some kind of objectivity. Um, I think in the best sense, this is biography as subjectivity, and I know of no other biography like it. So I will go on here. Um, there is, therefore, the mystery of Shakespeare's invisibility, his self-effacement and self-deprecation, self-depreciation, sorry. We may plausibly imagine that he accommodated himself to every situation and to every person whom he encountered. He had no, quote, morality in the conventional sense, since morals are determined by dislike and antipathy. But there is nothing of personal vanity or personal eccentricity about him. I would say the only thing about of personal eccentricity about him is what Peter Ackroyd says about the sonnets, is that the speaker... Um, is heavily addicted to puns and his own inordinate cleverness, the simple energy and rush that he gets uh, 
from being verbally creative. That's what I would say. Um, Peter Ackroyd says, in his sonnets too, there is the occasional element of self-abasement and even self-disgust. It is the key to part of the meaning of the sequence. Knowing himself guilty, he was drawn to those who would hurt him. And then, baffled by that injury, even if it were only indifference, he seeks solace in thought. For most of his life, he was Shakespeare the player rather than Shakespeare the gentleman, and the taint of the public theater never completely left him. In Sonnet 110, the narrator regrets that he has, quote, made myself a motley to the view, and in the following sonnet he laments, quote, that my name receives a brand from the element in which he works. And there are many critics who have therefore detected in Shakespeare a revulsion from the stage and a distaste for the business of writing and acting in plays. One of his persistent metaphors for human futility and pretension is the theater, of course. When he compares one of his characters to an actor, the illusion is generally negative. And you remember, of course, uh, the scene in Macbeth, uh, the poor player who struts his, his uh, time upon the stage. Um, what, a, what an amazing, uh, uh, maybe I haven't read enough essays or criticism of Shakespeare, but I have never heard that before. One of Shakespeare's persistent metaphors for human futility and pretension is the theater. And when he compares one of his characters to an actor, the illusion is generally negative. And this is particularly true of his later plays. How much this was a commonplace of the age, and how much a reflection of Shakespeare's true attitude is difficult to discern. And that's a good point, too. Was it just the sort of uh, cliché uh, stock image that uh, playwrights went to to compare futility to playwriting. It may have been a piece of rhythmic grumbling, not to be taken very seriously, but if we assume it to be genuine, it is one of the indications of Shakespeare's divided self. If he felt scorn, he felt at the same time what it was to be scorned. The poems, the sonnets written to the black mistress contain allusions to sexual disgust and sexual jealousy that are also to be found in his drama. There is a hint of homosexual passion in The Merchant of Venice, Twelfth Night, Othello, and elsewhere, a passion not unlike that evinced by the writer of the sonnets to his favorite boy. And there are also the veiled references to venereal disease in connection with the dark lady of the sonnets. Shakespeare's sonnets are suffused with sexual humor and sexual innuendo. The language of the poems is itself sexual, quick, energetic, ambiguous, and amoral. And from the evidence of the drama alone, it would be clear that he was preoccupied with sexuality in all of its forms. He outrivals Chaucer and the 18th century novelists in his command of smut and bawdry. He is the most salacious of all the Elizabethan dramatists in an area where there was already stiff competition. And thank you, Peter Ackroyd, for that pun there. There are more than 1,300 sexual allusions in the plays, as well as the repeated use of sexual slang. 
And there are 66 terms for the female vagina, among them rough, scut, crack, lock, salmon's tail, and clack dish. And there are a host of words for the male's penis, for the male penis, as well as insistent references to sodomy, buggery, and fellatio. In Love's Labor's Lost, our motto declares that he allows his royal master, with his royal finger thus, to dally with my excrement. And, and so, Shakespeare is never more lively, or more alert, or more witty, than in dealing with sexual matters. They are such a pervasive presence that they quite overshadow the ending of The Merchant of Venice, for example, where a number of obscene puns dominate the closing dialogue. The English crowd has always enjoyed sexual farce and obscenity, and he knew that such comedy would please the spectators of both higher and lower sort. But in his plays, sexual puns and sexual allusions are more than just a dramatic device. They are part of the very fabric and texture of his language. His writing is quick with sexual meanings. And so it could be argued that this is in part the sexual expressiveness of a celibate or of a faithful if absent husband, but common sense suggests otherwise. The printed reminiscences or gossip of his contemporaries strongly indicates that he had a reputation for philandering. Shakespeare may have been, quote, pricked out, as he puts it, for women's pleasure in a world where sex itself was a dark and dangerous force. The writer of the sonnets seems to have been touched by the fear and horror of venereal disease, and some biographers have even suggested that Shakespeare himself died from a related venereal condition. Nothing in Shakespeare's life or character would exclude the possibility. The Elizabethan age was one of great and open promiscuity. London women were known throughout Europe for their friendliness, and travelers professed to be astonished by the freedom and lewdness of the conversation between the sexes. It was not only in the capital, however, that sexual activity was commonplace. It has been recorded that, out of a population of 40,000 adults in the county of Essex, some 15,000 were brought before the church courts for sexual offenses in the period between 1558 and 1603. This is an astonishingly high number and can only reflect upon an even more obvious, the even more obvious opportunities and attractions of the city. It was not always a clean or a hygienic period in matters pertaining to the body, at least from a modern perspective, and the sexual act veered between mud wrestling and perfumed coupling. In order to avoid the more unpleasant sights and odors, it was customary for men and women to have sexual congress almost fully clothed, and it was in many respects a short and furtive act, a mere spilling of animal spirits. And in certain of the sonnets, the act provokes shame and disgust. Hamlet, of course, is a misogynist. Loathing for the act of sex is apparent in Measure for Measure, and in King Lear, in Timon of Athens, and in Troilus and Cressida. This is, of course, a function of the plot, 
and cannot be taken as an expression of Shakespeare's opinions on the matter, assuming that he had any at all, but it is a mirror of the reality all around him. The poet's passionate attachment to the young man of the sonnets, whether real or assumed, suggests that Shakespeare had an understanding of devoted male friendships. We have already noticed the presence of such friendships in the plays. It is also the case that Shakespeare was a born actor, and it has become apparent through the ages that actors are often possessed by an ambiguous sexuality. A great actor must always have a uniquely sensitive and yielding temperament, capable of assuming a thousand different moods, and psychologists have often assumed this to be a, quote, feminine component, inherited from love or imitation of the mother. We need not go too far down the byways of psychology to find this an eminently sensible observation. From the time of the Greek dramas of the 5th century BC, actors have been classified as wanton or effeminate, and in the late 16th century London, preachers and moralists invade against the uncertain sexuality of the players. Acting itself was also deemed to be unnatural, an attempt to escape from nature and an act of defiance against God. It does not prove anything about Shakespeare, but it does help to explain the context and society in which he worked. In his writing, he knew what it was like to be both Cleopatra and Antony, both Juliet and Romeo. He became Rosalind and Celia, Beatrice and Miss Quickly. More than any of his contemporaries, he created memorable female roles. This does not imply that he was in any sense homosexual, but suggests, rather, an unfixed or floating sexual identity. He had the capacity to be both female and male, in the scope of his art, and the scope of his art, must have affected his life in the world. We may recall here the recently discovered portrait of the Earl of Southampton, apparently dressed as a woman. In the late 16th century, it was considered natural and appropriate that high-born males should assert the feminine aspect of their natures. It was part of the Renaissance humanism considered essential for, quote, gentle conduct. And the concept of divine androgyny was an element in the popular and fashionable teaching inspired by Renaissance Platonists. This is the proper context in which to understand Shakespeare's invocation of the, quote, master-mistress of his passion. His was not an invitation to sodomy, which remained a capital offense in the 16th century England, together with heresy and sorcery. Even arguably homosexual poets, such as Marlowe, draped their allusions in appropriately classical garb. It has also been demonstrated that, in 16th century texts, what may be described as theoretical homosexuality was considered to be a predilection of the noble and the well-born. And so it would not have been unthinkable for the gentle Shakespeare to make poetical allusions to the subject. It was a love not of the phallus, but of the mind. 
And so it is instructive to compare the women in his plays with the dark lady of the sonnets. His comic heroines are lively and self-assured, which may also be an implicit reference to their sexual vitality. They have enormous powers of will in a world where, quote, will also meant sexual power and potency. Will Shakespeare was fully aware of this, but there are other females touched by more desperate and dangerous forces. The poet Ted Hughes has noticed in the plays evidence of Shakespeare's loathing of the lustful female together with a, quote, obsession with chastity. It is very hard when those two things come together. You despise both the lustful female and you are obsessed with chastity. Uh, no good news coming from that at all. This may be true of the late plays where Miranda and Perdita and Imogen are altogether non-sensual beings. But it is not clear in these accounts whether the preoccupations of Shakespeare have been confused with those of his commentators. There is really no typical Shakespearean woman, in other words, and it is perhaps more interesting to study the responses that they elicit from men. The most obvious and most common reaction is one of sexual jealousy, whether Othello at Desdemona or Leontes at Hermione. This is also the dramatic situation of the sonnets. There is much suspected betrayal and some real infidelity. It has become a commonplace of Shakespearean biography, of course, that Shakespeare suspected his absent wife of unfaithfulness. It is plausible, but unprovable. We can only say that infidelity, true or false, plays as large a part in the plots of his plays as in the sequence of the sonnets. It is, of course, true that most of Shakespeare's plays involve the promise and the problems of love in all its forms, and that his is the most profound treatment of love in the English language. It is natural and inevitable, therefore, that he should be preoccupied with sexual as part of amatory relationships. But that does not explain why sex is often treated with shame, horror, and disgust. In his treatment of love, he frequently uses the metaphors of warfare. And the only couple who seem to be happily married in the plays are Claudius and Gertrude in Hamlet, although, of course, Macbeth and his wife are not without fondness for each other. But these fortunate pairs are hardly what in the modern world would be called role models. Unhappy love and amatory conflict are the staple of drama, and dramatic convenience does not necessarily reflect Shakespeare's personal misgivings. There is no need to introduce a poignant autobiographical note. Although, when you write that well about Shakespeare and, um, and suppose this much about Shakespeare over the course of 17 pages, uh, you have just gone and made many, many poignant autobiographical notes. And even if, as he says, uh, we don't have any way of proving it or disproving it, um, it is marvelous to read just the supposition, and I hope you have enjoyed this little dip into Shakespeare, or at least Peter Ackroyd's Shakespeare.
Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.